Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We're back from summer vacation. Oh, yeah. We have some news. So as you know, we love making this podcast. We say that all the time. And even though sometimes it does get a little challenging to juggle all the balls, for the most part, this has been a really great adventure. If I had the option, would do it all over again. But my plate is very full and I have to make some adjustments because despite my best efforts, I can't do everything. So just like Nicole, I've been super busy with work stuff. Our flight department that I run at work has doubled in size. We went from two airplanes to four airplanes. We have more work this year than I think we've had in the last two years combined. So I'm super busy with that. I just bought a house. um, So I have all this house moving stuff to do. Um, I have some other stuff going on on personal side of things. So like Nicole, I am also stretched very, very thin. I do love making this podcast. So like Nicole said, we have made a tough decision to extend our hiatus. But have no fear. Like any good engineer, we have a plan. So as of the release of this episode, we have 49 mini failures in our content library. And although we have been releasing those, some of them periodically, most of you have never heard these episodes before. So going forward from this episode, we'll be releasing one mini failure a week. Yes, you heard that right. We're going to go to a weekly format for the mini failure releases. So one mini failure a week, plus to round it out to about a full year, we're going to add in a couple of our favorite regular episodes, mostly around the holidays in December. And yeah, we're going to do that for the next year. So I guess we're going to extend our hiatus for a year while we release these mini failures and try to get the rest of our ducks in a row or keep all of our balls in the air and We'll reassess in the spring and decide when, if, and how we come back. If you are a Patreon subscriber and this is brand new information, go back and listen to Mini Failure 49, where we get into the details of how this change will impact our Patreon page. And even though we're not going to be releasing new content, you can still email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can still follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us at Failurology. Our website will stay live, but I... We won't be updating the website pages with each episode like we have been with our regular episodes. And if you want to check out that site, it's failureology.ca. Also important to mention, if you are listening to this on YouTube, we will no longer be releasing episodes on that platform. So make sure to follow and subscribe to our show on one of the traditional apps. We will be over there. And just as a final parting thought, thank you to all of you for your support over the last three years. We couldn't have done this without you. We appreciate you, and we hope that you enjoy our mini failures over the next year. Just to circle back to when I started on this podcast, I'd originally planned to come on here for maybe three episodes, and I think I've done 50 episodes, 40 episodes at least with Nicole, and then a whole schwack of mini failures. I've stayed for way longer than I thought I would stay. I've had a ton of fun doing this podcast. I hope we we reactivate our podcast a year from now, but again, we'll we'll reassess at the time and and make some plans then. And for what it's worth, once we know, you'll know. So we will come back with an update once we've figured out what we're going to do. We just honestly, I need a little bit of time to just have less things on my plate and 
you know, get to be a regular human again. And then once I get to do that for a little bit, we'll kind of re-gauge how, how we can do this podcast going forward. So we're going to also talk about different formats, maybe shorter episodes, release schedules, all those things. There's different ways we can do it that will make it a lot easier on us. Uh, so we just... This podcast is important to us. We really like the show that we've built, but we've got a we probably will have to make a change in how we produce it just to make it a little less labor heavy on our part. Anyways, thank you very much. Appreciate you and I hope you enjoyed the mini failures. This week's episode of Failureology is brought to you by the Sit Down Stand Up Paddleboard Company. Whether you like to sit down or stand up, the sit-down stand-up paddleboard company has something for you. Don't miss our paddle sale. It's quite the ordeal. Now on to this week's engineering marvel slash failure. We're going to talk about seismic design or earthquake engineering. So as you know, we had a bit of a scheduling kerfluffle for episode 80, and unfortunately we weren't able to record this earlier, so we've plopped it in episode 83. But it is somewhat of a marvel as well, because seismic engineering, well, it's come a long, long way. It's continuing to grow and get better and better over time. And it's it's the things that are done to protect buildings from collapsing during an earthquake. So it's really, really important a lot of places have adapted seismic design into their codes and standards, and some places haven't. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through this episode. So the overall goal of seismic design is to make structures like bridges or buildings more resistant to earthquakes. The main goal is for people to exit the building safely and for the building to not collapse and cause more damage. But beyond that, there's many levels to seismic design. So keeping the building standing and allowing people to exit safely and having it not completely collapse, that's kind of the bare minimum. But you can go as far as designing an earthquake-proof building that still functions after an earthquake. And many evacuation centers or hospital trauma centers are built this way. So they're essentially the highest level. They function through an earthquake and still function once the earthquake and the tremors have stopped. There's been a number of major earthquakes over the years. We're not going to talk about them all, but I do want to mention a few common ones that come to mind. One of them being the Turkey earthquakes that happened earlier this year. And those were two back-to-back -back quite large earthquakes that occurred in an area that doesn't have a lot of seismic designs and standards incorporated into their buildings. So that was an especially devastating earthquake for that area. There was also the 2011 Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand, and then about two weeks later, there was the Tohoku earthquake off the coast of Japan that caused a huge tsunami, and that's the one that took out Fukushima Daiichi, which is the nuclear reactor off the coast of Japan. And then, of course, there's the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake, which caused the Boxing Day tsunami off the coast of Indonesia, and the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake in California, which we've talked about on a few previous episodes. I think mostly the mini failures, so you'll, you'll hear those kind of, I guess, in the coming weeks. Which brings me to my next point and a bit of an agenda for this episode. So we're going to talk about how earthquakes are measured and detected, how earthquake engineering has evolved over the years. And then we're also going to talk about the impact of earthquakes with respect to the generation of tsunamis, because that is fascinating. If you think earthquakes are interesting, the tsunamis that they create are just as, if not more, interesting. I find these fascinating. I'm definitely drawn to the science of tsunamis just as much 
if not more, as earthquakes. So before we can dive into the science part of earthquakes, tsunamis, and the engineering to protect us from them, let's talk a little bit about what earthquakes are and how we know that they are coming. An earthquake is the shaking of the surface of the Earth caused by a sudden release of energy in the Earth's lithosphere, which is the outermost rocky shell of the Earth's crust. So there's probably a better, more sciencey way to describe it. I've never taken a geography course, an official geography course, or geology course, but for the purpose of this podcast, rocky shell will do. Um, I'm not a dirt person. I've told people where to move dirt and how to move it. Nicole's not a dirt person, so we're going with rocky shell on this one. So the outer layer of the Earth's crust. The shaking of the Earth causes seismic waves that vary in frequency, type, and size. A big earthquake in a deserted area will likely have less impact than a smaller earthquake in a highly populated area that has not adopted seismic design regulations. The lithosphere, which we talked about before, the rocky shell, it is made up of tectonic plates that are continually moving and shifting, and for the most part, as the plates shift, they slide past each other smoothly, but if there are any irregularities, the plates enter what's called stick-slip behavior. So essentially, the energy to move the stuck plates builds up until it overcomes the sticking and the plates jerk forward past that irregularity. It's kind of like when you go down a water slide and everything's really smooth. And then when you run into a spot on the slide that's not very wet and you stick and then all of a sudden you let go and you go flying down the slide. That's, it's kind of like that, but not really. I'm sure you can all kind of visualize what we're talking about or have some awareness of what it is. We just can't think of a good practical example for what this would be. Ooh, or maybe it's like, you know, when you're fighting with your sibling and they're holding on to your hand and you're pulling your hand towards you and they won't let go. And then all of a sudden they let go and you slap yourself in the face. Kind of like that. You've built up all this energy in your hand that they're holding back. And then all of a sudden they release it by letting go of your hand. And then you smack yourself in the face. Yes, I do this with a dog all the time. I think it's hilarious. He doesn't think it's that funny, but he gets his rope or whatever he was chewing on. So the bigger the irregularity in this and the higher the energy to get past it, the bigger the earthquake makes a lot of sense. You're building up a ton of potential energy. It's got to release somewhere. There are a number of types of faults depending on how the plates are sliding against each other. Sometimes they move horizontally. Sometimes one plate is sliding over the other. We're trying to keep this a bit more high level because we have lots to cover. But if you're interested, there is a ton of information related to this online. As humans, though, we have a reasonably good understanding of where the fault lines are or where the different plates touch and can somewhat predict where earthquakes could occur. But we still have lots to learn about when they will occur and how big they'll be. So in 1935, Charles Francis Richter, an American seismologist and physicist, presented a landmark paper where he developed a magnitude scale used to measure an earthquake size and intensity from the amplitude of waves and their distance to the epicenter. So that's the Richter scale. And that was used for several years and is still referred to this day as a way to measure earthquakes. But the actual measurement has evolved into what's now considered surface wave magnitude, although I think us common folks still call it the Richter scale. It's all the same to me. It's big. I didn't like it. That's enough of a scale for me. But this evolved into the surface wave magnitude in the 1950s to measure remote events and improve accuracy for future events. And then again in the 1970s, the moment magnitude scale was developed 
to measure the amplitude of the shock as well as the total rupture area, average slip of the fault, and the rigidity of the rocks. There's also the Japan Meteorological Agency's Seismic Intensity Scale, the Medvedev Spoonhauer Karnak Scale, and the Mercalli Intensity Scale, which are based on the observed effects and are related to the intensity of shaking. So there's a lot of different ways that earthquakes are measured. And if I'm being completely honest through the research, I'm not 100% clear on which method everyone uses. It seems like depending on who's reporting on the earthquake, different measurement scales are used. And I think they also put the earthquake scale into terms that regular humans like myself will understand. So they could, I mean, you could tell me it's a Richter scale measurement and I wouldn't necessarily know the difference, especially not before I had researched this podcast. So And cool. So the Richter scale is, it's a log scale, I believe as well too, right? It's not a, it's not a linear scale. Like, so if you go from magnitude four to magnitude five, it's a fairly substantial increase. Like it's not a, it's not a linear, um, linear. Yeah, increase, I think so. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But today, earthquake intensity, it's it's presented for the most part as a magnitude on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being barely perceptible and 10 being completely devastating. And so I think you can kind of, it seems somewhat self-explanatory where it lands on that scale, how bad it was. So the, the Turkey earthquakes were, I think, a magnitude of high 8s, almost 9. Most of the earthquakes, actually, that I kind of had mentioned earlier, the Christchurch, the uh, Japan, and the Boxing Day tsunami, those were all, I think, some at least above seven. And, and for the most part, they were in the eight or nine scale. So the better we can detect and prepare for earthquakes, the more people will survive, which should be the goal for everyone, you know, in your engineering design or just in your normal life practices. Seismic codes have been developed and adopted in earthquake-prone areas to make buildings more resistant to earthquakes. So older buildings are often retrofitted to increase their resistance, although this can be expensive and is not necessarily widely adopted. Which was one of the challenges we saw in Turkey, their infrastructure was wildly unprepared to seismic activity and many buildings collapsed or partially collapsed, which greatly increased the death toll. I know we've talked about a lot of different countries throughout the course of this podcast, but I work primarily in Alberta or at least in Canada. And so I'm going to talk about my experience with buildings because that's what I work on. I mean, I'm not a seismic engineer, but I do work in building construction. So in Canada, and, and I assume the U.S. as well, the building codes dictate whether seismic design is required. And that's based on the location of the building and its usage. So a lot of sections of British Columbia, for example, would fall under seismic requirements, but in Calgary, we're not in a seismic region and therefore we're not required to implement seismic design. But that's because our risk to earthquakes is really low. So then it's just, if they made us design to seismic extremes in an area that has limited risk, it would be very costly for kind of no reason. So we're not required to do it. That said, there are some building types even in Calgary, like new hospitals where they're intended to be a gathering place for evacuees in an emergency. So they're what we call a, it would be like a shelter center. So if there's a big emergency, the hospital would be a place that continues to serve people and needs to function. That may require seismic design. So there's a couple new hospitals that were built in Calgary in the last decade. And I'm fairly certain that they all have some level of seismic design incorporated into them at the bare minimum in the structure itself. 
So like I mentioned in Vancouver and a lot of BC, seismic design is required and it's usually done by a separate engineering team. So they work with the rest of the consultant team to secure the major components of the building. And in my experience, seismic design involves a lot of cross bracing and extra securing to make sure the building stays together. So rather than just planning for the weight of the building on itself and then maybe some wind loads moving it laterally, you're assuming the entire building's going to shake. And so you want to put as many braces as you can to hold it together while that happens. Currently, there are several design philosophies in earthquake engineering, which use experimental results, computer simulations, and observations from past earthquakes to determine the required performance for the seismic threat. So these include appropriately sizing the structure to be strong enough to survive the shaking with an acceptable level of damage, to equipping it with base isolation or using structural vibration control technologies to minimize any forces and deformation. So different solutions to the same problem, slightly different problems. There are multiple ways to do this. Um, I do this, I think, in grade nine science. My design probably didn't, wouldn't work very well in real life. Um, I basically had a bunch of floating buildings and giant swimming pools. Um, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. It seemed really cool. My model was really cool. But I think in the reality of things, if, if uh, the earth is shaking, your water is going to splash everywhere and it would probably cause some other structural failures. So my approach, probably not the best approach out there, but I was also in grade nine. Yeah, I volunteered with the Apega Science Olympics this year and the group that I was in, which was the oldest division, they also had to build an earthquake proof structure, but it was kind of, it was a surprise challenge. So they only had, I think, 30 minutes or maybe an hour to learn about what the challenge was and then build their entire structure and test it. So it was a very short project and it was, it was very challenging. I don't know if I would have been successful myself because I was looking, you know, I was thinking a lot about how I would have done things. And I mean, I'm not a structural engineer, so I'm, I don't necessarily look at it from that lens, but I was thinking about what I would have done, but then watching them all get tested. I, I don't, I don't think mine would have survived. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really tricky challenge, I think, to just bring up with. I, I assume they provided some materials, or you had materials on hand to come up with, uh, come up with a good building to survive earthquake design. Back in the day when I did Science Olympics, I think we did spaghetti bridges. I believe I finished, or me, myself and my team finished third, I believe, in the city, which was which was pretty good. So, out of the people on my team, two of them wound up being engineers. One of them is a medical doctor, and the other one is very involved in theaters. So we had a pretty we had a pretty good team for Science Olympics. Based on studies from the Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand, precast concrete installed under new codes performed well, and another study noted precast panel buildings were durable during an earthquake compared to precast frame panels. So concurrent shake table testing of two or more building models is a vivid pervasive and effective way to validate earthquake engineering solutions experimentally. Plus, it looks really cool when they do it. So in 2008, the municipal services building of the city of Glendale, California was seismically retrofitted using an innovative combined vibration control solution. The existing elevated building foundation of the building was put on high dampening rubber bearings. I recommend checking that one out because the entire building is supported on just a few points. So normally you would have the entire foundation is touching the ground or in the ground. This, the entire structure rests on just a few points where those damping bearings are located. So the building looks really cool and is really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious how well it works because they essentially designed the entire building to kind of absorb the shock. It, it looks really cool. 
so in the work that I do, uh, the sensors that we have in the aircraft, they are also mounted on um, basically, yeah, some high dampening rubber bearings that are in there. So yeah, it works for us. Our sensor's about 75 pounds, so a little bit different on the building level, but same concept. You get something that just dampens out all the vibrations and dampens out any of the forces that you have just to maintain the building or the sensor in, in the plane and the place that it's supposed to be. On to some other buildings, though. Um, the Ritz-Carlton JW Marriott Hotel building, a part of the LA Live development in Los Angeles, California, is the first building in Los Angeles that uses an advanced steel plate shear wall system to resist the lateral loads of strong earthquakes and winds. Third building that we're going to talk about, the Kashiwazaki Kirwa Nuclear Power Plant, the largest nuclear generating station in the world by net electrical power rating. It happened to be near the epicenter of the strongest magnitude 6.6 July 2007 Shetsu offshore earthquake in Japan. This initiated an extended shutdown for structural inspection, which indicated that a greater earthquake proofing was needed before operation could be resumed. On May 9th, 2009, one unit, which was Unit 7, was restarted after the seismic upgrades. The test itself had to continue for 50 days. The plant had been completely shut down for almost 22 months following the earthquake. So the Superframe earthquake-proof structure is a proposed system composed of core walls, hat beams incorporated into the top level, outer columns, and viscous dampers vertically installed between the tips of the hat beams and the outer columns. This sounds pretty complex. I hope it works. It sounds like it works a little bit better than how they design buildings in Turkey. Hoping it works. So during an earthquake, the hat beams and outer columns act as outriggers and reduce the overturning moment in the core, and the installed dampers also reduce the moment and the lateral deflection of the structure. So this innovative system can eliminate inner beams and inner columns on each floor and thereby provide buildings with column-free floor space even in highly seismic regions. That sounds super cool. It also sounds super expensive. I think that the World Trade Centers that collapsed on September 11th in New York City had a somewhat similar design, which is where the majority of the structural elements were located on the outside of the building, which allowed them to have much more open and more leasable space on every floor. Not that it was necessarily designed for seismic reasons. I just think that was the structural design or vision that they took at the time on that project. So I don't think this is necessarily new technology. And and one thing that you kind of learn over time in engineering is is while there are people that are coming up with new technology and new methods, oftentimes we're slowly just making tweaks and making slight changes to things that are we already know work to see if we can make them work better. Or maybe we're combining a couple different methods together to make something new, but it's all kind of just building on itself. So now that we've talked about what happens on land, let's talk about undersea earthquakes and more importantly, tsunamis. This is so interesting. Okay, so I'll start by mentioning that tsunamis are not exclusively caused by earthquakes. They can also be caused by volcanic eruptions or underwater explosions. In any case, a tsunami is caused when there is substantial volume of water displaced out at sea. So remember before we were talking about the tectonic plates shifting and releasing energy if they get stuck? So where those plates meet underwater, that energy is then transferred to the water and creates waves. And the wave height offshore is small and usually very long, often hundreds of kilometers, which causes them to go unnoticed at first. 
as the waves move closer to the shore and, and enter shallower water, they change in height from an effect called wave shoaling because the wave energy transports velocity changes with water depth. Honestly, this is a whole other rabbit hole that you can go down. Uh, there's a lot of information on wave shoaling online that I did not necessarily have time to get into, but it looked really, really interesting. So if you want to check that out, but essentially as the as the water gets shallower, the waves start to get taller. So if the earthquake epicenter is far away from land, the tsunami is referred to as the Telu tsunami. And the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami was one such tsunami that occurred from a magnitude 9 earthquake about 160 kilometers off the western coast of northern Sumatra in the Indian Ocean. And by the time it made landfall just before 8 a.m. on December 26, the waves were 30 meters high, which is essentially a 10-story building. It's crazy. There's a really, really good movie called The Impossible that I watched. I think I watched it on Netflix. It's based on the true story of Maria Bellin and her family who were in Khao Lak, Thailand, when the tsunami struck. I, hi I highly recommend this movie. Even though it's fictional, I thought they did a really good job of giving me an understanding of what it would be like to experience this tsunami. You get to see how these characters experience the tsunami you know they land on the beach the day before or a couple days before you know they're there for christmas and then you kind of follow all of them throughout the tsunami and all of the different things that happen afterwards so i thought it was a really really good movie about the story of this family and, and it's based on a true story because this family did in fact experience this tsunami so in some tsunami-prone countries, earthquake engineering measures have been taken to reduce the damage caused onshore. Japan, for example, where tsunami science and response measures first began following a disaster way back in 1896, has produced ever more elaborate countermeasures and response plans. The country has built many tsunami walls up to 12 meters high to protect populated coastal areas. Other localities, they have built floodgates up to 15 and a half meters high and channels to redirect the water from an incoming tsunami. However, their effectiveness has been questioned as tsunamis often overtop the barriers. I feel it's one of those things you kind of build for a, you know, an almost worst case scenario, and there's always going to be something bigger and higher that just mitigates all of your plans. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster was directly triggered by the 2011 Toku earthquake and tsunami when waves exceeded the height of the plant's seawall, Iwate Prefecture, which is an area at high risk from tsunami, had tsunami barrier walls in the Taro Seawall, uh, totaling 25 kilometers long at coastal towns, and the 2011 tsunami topped more than 50% of the walls and caused catastrophic damage. The effort was there. Unfortunately, nature was just that much better. So the Okashiri Hokkaido tsunami, which struck Okashiri Island of Hokkaido within two to five minutes of the earthquake on July 12th, 1993, created waves as much as 30 meters tall, as high, like Nicole mentioned, as a 10-story building. So the port town of Aonoi was completely surrounded by a tsunami wall, but the waves washed right over the wall and destroyed all the wood frame structures in the area. The wall may have succeeded in slowing down and moderating the height of the tsunami, but it did not prevent major destruction and loss of life. So the challenge with these walls is they're, they're very expensive to build. They need to be very strong and very tall to, I mean, water is very, very powerful. And 
even though we've talked about a couple tsunamis with 30 meter waves, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the highest they'll ever be. So maybe you need to have taller walls than that. You know, you're kind of going to plan for a worst case scenario. So eliminating all risk is very, very expensive. We've talked about that before. It's it's almost impossible to eliminate all risk and stay within budget on schedule and still have something that works the rest of the time because these tsunamis do not happen every day or every year. They're a worst case scenario that you're trying to plan for and mitigate. So sure, you build a 10-story tall seawall, but then you have to live with that seawall for you know forever it's there all the time every day and now you've lost your view or your access to the sea and so well in some scenarios where tsunamis are more common that may be worth it in other areas maybe not and that's something that everyone kind of has to decide for themselves which risks to mitigate and how to do so so it's 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 not as simple as just put walls everywhere that doesn't really work there needs to be a more thoughtful and compromised approach to to protect these areas from tsunamis. Yeah, and, and tsunamis I feel are really difficult to deal with because again, all the energy is you know generated you know from an earthquake, it's transferred to the water, to the ocean, and the tsunamis can travel for hundreds, thousands of, of kilometers before they make landfall. And when they do, all of that energy that's in the water um, now suddenly impacts the land, you know, with a ton of force, a ton of magnitude, and and it's very, very destructive. So it's very hard to I feel design a system that that dissipates that energy of the water um, in an effective way. So there you have it, earthquake engineering and how we're designing the built environment to protect us from seismic activity. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. I guess it's called X now, which is a thing. I'm still going to call it Twitter. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode for Mini Failure One, which is about Lake Pinier, which drained into a salt mine in a matter of minutes. Bye everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>